<clears throat> well, blizzards are beautiful things, but they're kind of yucky when you get stranded in them, if you know what I mean. Uh, I was so frustrated last weekend, really excited about the message and ready to get back and preach, uh, but I was stuck in a blizzard, as you heard, and originally scheduled to come home on Friday evening, did not actually arrive back until Monday evening, just about midnight. So I'm glad to be back now, but uh, I was so bummed to not be able to with you, to be able to be with you, but th- Many thanks to our lead pastors. They came through in a big way. And whether by using a video to deliver the message or whether preaching it in person, at all four of our congregations, God's word went out. And so we're grateful for that. And thank you for your prayers and for standing with us in that. We do begin a brand new series today called Powerful Signs. It's focused on the seven miraculous signs that are presented in the Gospel of John. Now, if you, if you surveyed all four of the Gospels, I think you'd find <clears throat> that there are roughly 35 different miracles of Jesus that are presented there, all kinds of different miraculous things he did. But in John's Gospel, there are seven that John highlights. It's a very different kind of approach. And he doesn't see them just as miracles. He He calls them miraculous signs. To John, they point to who Jesus Christ is and and what he came to give. Signs are not an end in themselves. They're pointers to something else. Let's say that you were going to a remote town somewhere. You've never been there before. You don't have a clue how to get there. And uh, you've got a couple of old maps, and you've got a GPS, but, but this thing is so remote that your GPS even, isn't even working properly. And so you're trying to find your way there, and you see a sign. What do you do when you see that sign? Do you stop? Do you build a shrine there? Do you stop there and worship the sign? Do you stand back and admire it? Do you point at it, talk about it? I think that would be pointless and purposeless. That's not the point of a sign. A sign exists to point you to something else. And that's what these signs do. And yet many people today, just as the people back in Jesus' day did, they failed to read the signs. For instance, when Jesus fed the 5,000, And we're going to look at that story in just a few weeks. It's one of these miraculous signs. He did that with five loaves and two fish. And the people came back the next day, as you may recall, and Jesus said, you're coming back not because you saw the sign and read the meaning of it. You're coming back because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You've missed the whole point, Jesus is saying. The miracle had become an end in itself. They went home, they talked about it, they celebrated, wow, can you believe what God, what the Lord did? And yet astoundingly, they totally missed the point. And you say, but pastor, what is the point? What do these signs in John's gospel point to? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. A fabulous question. 
So I want you to look at the way John describes that here in John chapter 20. Look at what he said. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, he's acknowledging there, hey, I'm aware, I'm aware of the other gospel. By the way, John's gospel was the last one of the four written. He's saying, I'm aware there are many other miracles recorded in the other what the other apostles wrote down, the other writers. But notice his special purpose. These are written, these seven miraculous signs that I've recorded are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I see two things right there in this verse. Two purposes John wants us to get out of the signs. One, that we would really get a clear sense of who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, and that by understanding that, we would then put our faith in him and experience that life that he came to really give us. By the way, life is one of the main themes in the book of John. He actually starts it off by saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He says, all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus said in another place, I am the bread of life. He said in another place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said in another place, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. John says the whole reason I'm recording these, and by the way, the whole reason we're doing this series on them, is so that we would understand where the signs point us. They point us to who Jesus is, and they point us to the life that we can experience when we have a personal relationship with him. And that's why we're calling this series Powerful Signs. Now, as we jump into this first one, the first powerful sign we look at in the Gospel of John is the one found in chapter 2 where Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Now, I, I want to try to impress on you uh, early how ordinary this was, these things that Jesus used for the miracle. It was just kind of an ordinary wedding. Weddings are rites of passage in life. In fact, I, I'd like to see a show of hands. I'd like to see a show of hands at, at all of our congregations, at, at Latham, at Greenbush, Saratoga, Half Moon. I, I'd like to get you to raise your hand if this is true of you. If either you've been married in the past and or you are currently married. Would you just raise your hand up high and proud and wow, look at that. Look at all these people. Look at all these people. By the way, can you see the halo over their head? Can you see the glow on these people? That's what the, Yeah. These are people who've been married and or are currently married. Yeah, most people get married. Not all do, of course. And I'm convinced that not all should get married. But most people get married at least once in a lifetime. 
And every week all around the world, there are multiplied thousands of weddings going on somewhere in the world. This is just another wedding. Yeah, it's a sacred ceremony, but when you think about it, pretty common. It was not only an ordinary event, but it was ordinary water that was used in this miracle. Water is one of the basic and most common of all things. Water has no color, no taste, has no odor, no smell about it. I'm told, I'm no expert on this, but I'm told that over 70%, by the way, of the earth's surface is covered with water. I'm told by people who are experts in physiology and understand this stuff, I'm told that our physical body, yours and mine, is made up primarily of, of, of water. It makes up the tissue of our body. On September the 28th, I was intrigued, just four months ago, NASA's website posted an article entitled, entitled, NASA Confirms Evidence That Liquid Water Flows on Today's Mars. Scientists, as you know, have always wondered for decades, indeed for centuries, is there water on other planets? Well, now... We've confirmed there's flowing water on Mars. Wow. I don't know if we'll build a water park anytime soon there, right? But you know what? I think our youth groups, I think our youth groups ought to get a whitewater rafting trip to Mars. I want to be a part of that. I want to raft in the water that is flowing on Mars. Wouldn't that be neat? So in this first sign miracle, Jesus is dealing with a very common commodity water, and it's one of the most common of all settings, a basic wedding. But are you listening? Don't let the ordinariness of it all fool you. Because here's where God does his best work. God does his best work when he takes ordinary settings with ordinary people, and he does extraordinary things. As many of you know, I, I, I came from, I guess what you call humble beginnings in, in a, on a farm in Tennessee. I grew up in a family who were very poor, didn't have a lot of stuff, tried to eke out a living as so many other multiplied, probably millions of people once did, on little farms all across this country. And I, I remember thinking early on, really early in my life, I remember distinctly having the thought that I would like to be positively used by God. I really thought that. I, but, but here's what I honestly thought. I thought people like me can't be used by God. I looked at people who were being used by God, and I thought, well, that's really cool. The best thing I can do is pray for them, stand behind them, support them, encourage them, applaud them. But people like me could, could really never be used by God. In my very early years, I honestly believed that. I was disappointed by it, by that conclusion, but I honestly believe that that was true. But then I began to read the Bible. I really began to dive into the Bible as a teenager. And I read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's verses 26 to 29. Would you look at it with me? And this changed my entire perspective about God's power over quality. God's power to take the ordinary and do the extraordinary and the profound, okay? Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. 
Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Now let's go back to the beginning of that verse, okay? Let's go back. I read that and my eyes were bugging out. I thought people like me can't be used by God. I'd love to be. But it says, not many of you were wise. I said, well, I'm not wise. I, I sure hope I will be one day when I get old, but I'm not wise. And it goes on to say, not many of you were influential. <laughs> Boy, I'm sure not influential. I feel like a total nobody. Nobody knows who I am. I seem to go unnoticed. Not, it goes on to say, not many of you were of noble birth. And boy, I, I latched onto that. I thought, man, that's me. <laughs> My family has no pedigree whatsoever. And I went right on through it, reading it like that. God chose the weak things of the world, foolish things, lowly things, despised things. And you know what I concluded as a young man wanting to be used by God? Wow, wow. If that's the credentials God needs, I guess even I can qualify. I hope that message, God will drive it supernaturally home to your heart today. If you have a deep desire to please God, to be used by God in a positive way, guess what? If you can identify with those verses, you qualify. And it changed my life when I realized it. Can I tell you one of the big ironies of the Christian life? This will blow your mind. Some of the people who are the most talented, most gifted, most qualified, humanly speaking, are you listening, are not super usable by God. Why? Because they're too dependent on themselves. The secret to being used by God is realizing, hey, I bring nothing. I have nothing really to offer. And I'm dependent upon him. By the way, that's one of the reasons I like this first miraculous sign so much. Because this is an example of Jesus just taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. So let's brief, let's, let's get this game plan. Let's briefly walk through the story and look at some of the verses and then let's draw a couple of key conclusions, principles that we can apply to our lives. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, when it says his disciples were there, probably wasn't the 12 yet. We don't know how many disciples Jesus had at this point. But according to John's gospel, he had called about five of them in the past five days, all right? So this disciple band was building, but it probably wasn't complete yet. Wedding celebrations in that culture often lasted for a number of days. Often they would celebrate for up to a week. And we don't know how long this one had going, been going on, but we do know they ran out of wine. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, whether it was bad planning, extra guests showed up, or folks drank a little more than expected, we don't know. 
But all we know, this was super embarrassing for the host couple getting married. It was super embarrassing for the host family because in that culture, hospitality was so important and to run out of wine was a huge faux pas. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, decides to get involved and do something. So she told Jesus about this. And his reply in verse 4 is very interesting. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, I don't know what you make of that verse, and it kind of gets translated a little differently in different English translations. But doesn't it seem a little abrupt to you, to be honest? Almost dismissive, right? Yeah. Certainly the way our English Bibles translate that statement. Now, whatever the meaning of it was, I want to point out something to you. I don't think it's rude at all. I don't think it's rude at all. What he's saying, amongst other things, is that I'm not operating on the basis of need. I'm not fulfilling someone else's schedule. I'm only operating on my father's timetable. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says a little bit more about this in John chapter 5. And it's kind of funny. In our family, we've developed a little tradition around this verse, John 5, 17. When somebody sneezes in your family, you probably say what? Bless you, right? Or God bless you. And that's cool if you do that. And if you want to keep doing that, that's great. But you know what I started doing several years ago? Based on John 5, 17, look at what it says. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too, I too am working. And so in our family, we started years ago, when somebody sneezed, we say, God is working. <laughs> and we will kind of chuckle about that, but it's a reminder to us, you sneeze, God is working. And it's a reminder to us that God is always working. He goes on in verse 19, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, what's Jesus saying there? He's saying, look, my philosophy is not to do good things and then kind of tag a prayer on and ask God to bless it. My strategy is to try to discern what my father is already doing because he's always working. God is always working. And I want to then get in on what he's already doing. But as cool as all of that is, Mary, bless her heart, is left with no assurance that he would do anything. But she knows that if he does, it's going to be strategic. So in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that statement. Do whatever he tells you. Other translations say, whatever he says to you, do it. No questions, just do it. Now, here would be an interesting little homework assignment for you if you dare take on the challenge. You know, Mary doesn't talk a lot in the Gospels. There's very few words attributed to Mary, very few things, few things recorded that she actually said. 
But what is recorded there, if you took those, there's a number of fabulous one-liners. In fact, I've even thought of doing a series someday on the one-liners of Mary. That She preaches some fabulous sermons in her statements she makes, but never is a statement more profound than this one. Whatever he says to you, do it. Well, I'll tell you, you could almost just stop the sermon right there. That's enough to go home on. God bless you. Be warmed and filled. Whatever he says to you, do it. See you later. God bless. Isn't that good? Whatever he says to you, do it. I was meeting with a couple recently, a wonderful couple from one of our congregations, and the woman over lunch, she, she made a statement that has kept ringing in my ears. It was fabulous. We were talking about how God had worked in their lives and a, and a major choice they had made some years ago. And she made this statement. She said, obedience is greatly underrated. Oh, that's good. Obedience is greatly underrated. What a great line. And Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, let me caution you here, <coughs> here <coughs> because sometimes we reverse this. In fact, I've even heard preachers teach this in reverse. And we teach, whatever you want him to do, tell him and he'll do it. You ever heard that? Whatever you want him to do, you tell him and he'll do it. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with bringing a request to God. That's a part of what prayer is. But Mary here is saying, look, the really significant thing is when he's the initiator of something, the normal order ought to be what he says to you, you listen to it, you take it to heart, and then do it. Because obedience is greatly underrated. Verse 6 reads, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Now, with that as a foundation, I want to suggest to you now two principles that enable the ordinary to become the extraordinary, and for Jesus to demonstrate his power over quality. Two principles. Instead of three points in a poem, it, it's just going to be two today, okay? Here's the first one. When Jesus Christ is about to do something extraordinary, he begins by giving a command. You'll find this, if you check it out, to be consistent right through Scripture. Here, the command is, fill the jars with water. Sometimes his commands may even seem trivial in the moment. I assume these servants could have thought, well, excuse me, uh, we don't need water, Lord, there's plenty of water around here. What we really need is wine. What good will doing pouring water, what good will that do when we need wine? And if they had said that, they would have needed to learn the lesson we all need to learn in this journey of following Jesus. A command has to be obeyed before his power is released. Just about every act of God is precipitated by an act of obedience at some point. Let me illustrate this from some of the 
actual stories we're going to look at in the coming weeks. We're going to look at the story in chapter 4 of this nobleman who came to Jesus and said, my son is lying sick at home. And Jesus said, go home, your son is well. He turned around, he obeyed what the Lord said, even though he didn't see the healing. He had to take the Lord at his word, and he, he just obeyed. And as he was headed home, a servant approached him and said, it's incredible, it's wonderful, we're all celebrating. Your son has gotten restored and well. He said, what time did it happen? And it was the exact time he had been with Jesus. But all the Lord said was, go home. And your obedience is saying, okay, although I don't understand it fully, I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to fill these water pots with water. I'm going to obey the Lord. In John 6, and we're going to look at that in a few weeks, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said, take the loaves and distribute them. They probably thought, are you kidding? Five loaves, two fish? I mean, these aren't going to go very far. But they began to obey and distribute the loaves. They began to multiply, and their obedience unleashed the power of God. Chapter 9, Jesus met a man born blind. He created a muddy mixture from some clay on the ground, put it on the man's eyes. You remember the command he gave him? He said, now, you go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man obeyed what Jesus said, and in his obedience, the power of God was unleashed, and his sight was restored. We could go on and on. Chapter 11 of John, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus gave a command, roll the stone away. And what we see over and over in the Bible is that in obedience to God, God's power is unleashed. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is we're not just passive observers in the work of Jesus Christ. We don't just sit back passively, fold our arms and say, Lord, do it, you said you would. No, God usually invites us to get involved and participate. You could kind of sum it up in the song I sang growing up. An old hymn called Trust and Obey. The words go, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Our work is trust and obedience. And by the way, if you're window shopping Christianity, (coughs) if you're here and you go, you know what, I'm not sure I believe all this yet, but you know what, I'm curious and I'm feeling the draw of God and God is calling me. Can I say something to you? God is the only one. The Lord is the only one who will save you. Can I say something else to you? If you're window shopping and just kind of kicking the tires, the, only, the Lord is the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can. But he will not save you by you just sitting back passively like a proverbial bump on a log. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached a powerful gospel message, the people said, Men and brothers, what must we do? Remember what Peter answered? Oh, you don't do anything. Don't worry about it, man. That's not your... No, God, God, just one day you'll realize you're saved and everything will be cool. You'll find nothing of the sort in the Bible. Peter's response was repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Change your mind about God. Change your mind about sin. Change your mind about self. Quit hijacking your own life and being your own Lord. Turn it over to him. Place your trust in him and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Obedience unleashes the power of God even in salvation. So I hope you get this first principle. When Jesus Christ is about to do something extraordinary, he usually gives a command, and our job is to just obey, and as Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it. Just do it, because that's the key to the abundant life. Well, the second and final principle is this. When Jesus Christ gives a command, follow it fully, Don't just follow it fully, but there's another part. And learn to trust him for the results. Now, where do I get that from? Well, I think it's significant here that when Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, you remember what they did? It says they filled them to the brim. All the way up. They didn't partially obey. They filled them right to the very top. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we wonder why God's work in our life is not more obvious, and yet our obedience is actually fairly casual. Sometimes it's half-hearted. We tip our hat in his direction, but we don't fill the water jar to the brim. Sometimes God working in our lives is not evident, not because God is not able. God is able to do immeasurably more. But sometimes God's work in our lives is not quite evident because our obedience is casual, conditional, and half-hearted. Boy, when I was a new Christian, I heard a guy named Stephen Olford. He's been dead now for a number of years, a renowned world leader, one of the most, most recent, Billy Graham said of Stephen Olford, this British Christian and preacher and leader, he said he had the most influence on my ministry of any person. That, that's how much he thought of Stephen Olford. I, later I got to know Stephen Olford's son, Jonathan, a wonderful Christian leader and counselor. But Stephen Olford made a statement when I, I knew none of that. I didn't know who he was, but I just heard the statement as a young man. Here's the statement I heard. He said, God won't teach you anything new until your obedience is up to date. Boy, that shook me. God won't teach you anything new until your obedience is up to date. In other words, if you're not obeying what you know to do, you're really getting stuck. Your progress is stalled. And if there's even a kernel of truth in that, and I believe there is, I think we could adjust it a little bit and say, God won't do anything new until your obedience is up to date. Our job is to fill the water pots with jar, with jars with water, and then we trust him for the results. Friends, can I impress on you? It's a huge, huge day in our walk of discipleship when we realize that our responsibility is obedience and Jesus is responsible for the results. I hope you're following me here. Our responsibility is to pour in the water, but Jesus alone can turn it in 
to wine. Boy, I feel this in preaching very, very often. I really take preaching to you guys very seriously. I do. I believe it's one of my major callings. I take it so seriously. I, I, of all the things I do, it's definitely right there at the top of things I think I'm called to. And boy, I pray and I read like a maniac and I prepare and I study and I check the commentaries and I go over it in the Greek text and I try to study the nuance and I try to think, how am I going to present this effectively to you? And I do all this work. I sit for hours in front of the computer, but then I look at it. Honestly, this is honest experience I have many times toward the end of the week when I've put all this work in. I look at it, what I've done, and I think, pablum. That is so watery, no pizzazz, so predictable. Banal, dull, plain. I've done my best, God, but I don't think anybody's going to get anything out of this. And you'd be amazed how many times I hear God kind of whisper to my spirit, have you forgotten whose work this is anyway? Your job is just to fill the water jars up. My job is to turn it into wine for somebody back there, for somebody down here, for somebody over there. You do your job, Rex. I'll do mine. But I gotta be honest with you. I feel so, so inadequate. And yet over and over again, when I feel like the sermon is so pathetic, inevitably somebody walks up and go, goes, have you been reading my mail? Is, have you been bugging our house? That was directly for me. And I go, God, you did it again. All I did was fill the water jar up and you turned it into wine. Parents, have you found this to be true in your parenting? Well, I tell you, parenting will rock your world, won't it? It's not for cowards. You're doing the best you can to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but it's not easy. You feel like the devil is trying to rip your home apart, destroy your kids, and as a parent, the more you learn, the less you feel like you know. Can you, parents, can you hear the lesson from this story today? You may feel like a pretty watery mom or dad, but God says to you, do your best and then trust me to take care of the consequences. I can turn the water into wine. Maybe your marriage seems watery right now. One woman said of her marriage, I started out looking for the ideal, but then it became an ordeal and now I want a new deal. <laughs> and maybe you can identify with that. But can I say to you that if you bring that old watery marriage that's in deep trouble, if you bring it under the lordship of Christ and say, Lord, would you be Lord of our marriage, and both spouses are willing to do that, it may feel watery, but he'll bring wine and richness. Maybe you feel like a watery, weak witness at work right now. Can you learn the lesson of this text today? Your job is just to do your best to represent Jesus. Go in prayed up. Go in filled with the Holy Spirit. Go in sensitive to what God is doing. It's still just water, though. Only God can turn it into wine. 
Say, Lord, all you're asking of me is to pour in the water. You'll take care of the rest. And that attitude takes the pressure off. We'd learn to trust him for the results. Now, as we wrap this up today, let me ask, what does this first miraculous sign point to? Well, let's look at this verse 11 here for a moment. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. By the way, anytime you see it, he, he revealed his glory, that means people understood more of who he really is. You could substitute the word he was magnified or it was made clearer. That's one of the key meanings of glory, all right? He revealed his glory, so they understood who he was a little better, a little better, and he, his disciples put their faith in him. I like that because that shows that they were getting it. That was the whole reason that John wrote these down so that we'd believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we'd have life in his name. We'd really experience what he came to do. And I'm struck by this last phrase, they put their faith in him. They didn't put their faith in him making more wine for them. They didn't say, oh man, we got a good deal going here now. Woo, baby. You know what? Hey, next time we have a meal together, hey, you bring the water, you bring the jars, all right? Let's fill the jar up. Hey, Jesus, we'd like to request a nice Merlot next time, all right? Now, Jesus might have done this miracle again, so we don't know, but it's not recorded in the Bible again. As far as we know, he never turned water into wine again. No, uh, they didn't put their faith in him for more wine. They just put their faith in him, and I think that's cool. Because sometimes people get this idea that they're going to use God. You ever seen that? I'm going to believe in Jesus for something. And then we add our shopping list to the end of that. No, these disciples put their faith in him, period. Whatever he wants us to do, we're going to do. Now, as we close today, I just can't help but believe that God is whispering to some of us listening right now, what he wants us to do. And the question that should be ringing in our ears as we wrap this lesson up, this first miraculous sign is, am I gonna do what he says to do? It's our obedience that unleashes his power. When he gives the command of what to do, the question is, will we cooperate with him and allow him to turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. Father, thank you for this first miraculous sign. I'm, I'm just real excited about this series because I know that each of these signs is just packed with meaning and practical lessons for the Christian journey. I know, I'm excited because I know you're gonna grow us up. You're gonna grow this church up, Lord. You're gonna deepen us. You're going to stretch us. You're going to grow us up during this series. And, and that's very exciting to think about. Lord, would you grow me? Would you stretch me? Would you challenge me in this series? And Father, I pray that through it all, we'd get it. We'd get who you are and that we would learn to experience fully the abundant life you came to bring. We're excited, Lord, about that. Lead us. 
guide us, and thank you that you are always working. In Jesus' name, amen. Would the ushers please come forward as we get ready to receive 